electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Brian. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and welcome to The Exchange. We kick off a fresh week with stocks again trading a little heavy. The Nasdaq down more than 1% right now. The Nasdaq 100 is down 30% this year. But we'll hear from one investor who thinks that could turn around in 2023. Speaking of tech, Apple reportedly dropping out of the bidding for the NFL Sunday package. So who will get the rights? Amazon? Disney? Maybe a dark horse contender will have that and other media predictions for the new year. Plus, Carter Worth reveals his chart of the year for 2022. It was actually a pretty ugly one. Maybe that's no surprise. He does also have one stock he think is well set up from here, and we'll get to that. But first, over to Dominic Chu with today's market action. So the hangover continues post-Fed, and we see the valuations contracting just like we had at the beginning of, well, we'll call it the middle of last week, given the Fed interest rate decision. Right now, the Dow Industrial is down about 69 points, about one quarter of 1%. Half percent declines for the broader S&P 500, 38.30 the last last trade there. That's down roughly 21 points. Uh, again, for the context and trading range today for the S&P 500, up two points. So slightly positive at the highs of the session, down 31 at the lows. You can see we're tilting towards the low end of that trading range today. The Nasdaq composite 10,585 off over 1%. And a lot of that tech communication services trade is behind that weakness, relatively speaking, in the Nasdaq. One specific part that's contributing probably the most to that downside underperformance has been the communication services sector. You can see here it's down about one and a half percent so far today, and it's been in a steady downtrend over the course of the last year. And today has a lot to do with Meta Platforms, the company formerly known as Facebook, parent company of Instagram. It could be facing some or it could be possibly billions and billions of dollars worth of fines from the European Union tied to alleged antitrust violations in those markets over there with regard to online classifieds, other things like that. Because of that weakness in Meta, it's dragging the entire sector down. So communication services is still one of the big underperformers. And then if you're looking for the stocks of the day, it's M&A, Merger Monday, although it was kind of, I guess, reported over the weekend. Aerojet Rocketdyne, they make a lot of missile systems, propellants, things that move rockets, Jets, that sort of thing. Well, those th- that Aerojet Rocketdyne trade is up about 1.5%. It is agreed to be bought out by competitor Healthy Harris Technologies for around $4.7 billion, 58 bucks a share in cash. Now, remember, Aerojet Rocketdyne had earlier this year been agreed to buy, be bought up by Lockheed Martin. Regulators kind of nixed that deal. So if you're, not, if you're wondering why, Kelly, it's not trading right at 58 bucks a share, there likely is still a regulatory risk with this particular deal. So oh, yeah. traders putting some of that bet there, $55.77, the last trade there. Kel, I'll send things back over. All right, Dom, thank you. Actually, come on over. Let's talk a little more about the tech wreck we've seen this year. The sector's down 25% year-to-date as we've seen the Fed massively tighten interest rates. And now, widespread fears a recession is coming. But my next guest is still bullish, saying tech is not dead. Joining me now is Michael Yoshikami. He's the founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. All right, Michael, there's a big difference between saying it's not dead and that you'd actually buy some of the stocks. So (laughs) which ones do you like here? Well, let me kind of paint a scenario for you over the long term. Let's call it six or nine months. Let's say, for example, that companies continue to spend capex on innovation 
let's say that the oxygen goes out of the room for companies that don't have uh, any earnings, where is that money going to go? I think it has to go to the big tech that has quality earnings. And I think that uh, in discussions with my team, uh, I was talking to Jay and Kenny and my team the other day, I think that is going to be the driver, but it's not going to be this year, which is only two weeks. It's probably not even going to be the first or second quarter. But watch what happens when you got nothing else to invest in in tech because companies are going out of business. People are going to migrate towards big tech. What if there's not as much liquidity as we think? In other words, what if that liquidity is you know gone because the Fed sucked it out, or is going elsewhere, not in the stock market, but to what Dom and I like to talk about? You know, four and a half percent on a one-year CD, for instance. I mean, why do why do you think that there is going to be this mandate to look for opportunities that would wind up in tech? Well, first of all, I think there is going to be a bleeding of. Um, liquidity. I think you're going to see, first of all, interest rates are very low, so that money is not available to borrow and invest in startups. And I absolutely think 4%, uh, we're certainly seeing it from our clients, 4% fixed income is pretty appealing when you look at what's happening in the market. But I just think there's going to be leftover money. Um, I'm not saying that all the money from the problematic tech or the non-earnings tech is going to go into big tech, but I think there's still plenty of money to go around. And frankly, people, you know, we have to remember, Kelly, People's memories are very, very short. All we need is a month of a tech rally, and people won't even forget, won't even remember what happened. And we've already had month. maybe a couple months of that as well. So, Dom, uh, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, all of these are Michael Yoshikami's picks. Michael, you also like Costco, J&J, Airbus. So we shouldn't paint this as a tech-only trade, but what do you think, Dom? I mean, it, what's interesting about this is Michael has an interesting point about this. Over the last two decades, arguably since the end of the dot-com era, right? You've had a certain subset of companies that have become the go-to place for investors and sure. they have for quite some time. They're the exact same ones that Michael talks about. It's the Apple, the Microsoft, although they're becoming even slightly more appealing, arguably, these days than they were back then because they are much larger companies. And you say to yourself, why would they, the, 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 you know, there, there's a reason why these companies can't grow as much, but they've also become the safe haven trade in many ways. Yeah. And, exactly. and we saw that exactly. before, by the way, the Fed started to raise interest rates. The interest exactly. rate trade has taken valuations down because there, there is, to your point, Kelly, an alternative now to risk, risk-adjusted money. So that's the reason why. But I'm pretty sure at this point, all it takes, as Michael said, like to a point, people to see that somehow Apple or Microsoft or Alphabet or maybe even a meta platforms, which has been crushed, right, right. could be someplace they want to be back in. Michael, what do you say? I mean, the, the biggest question maybe is if last decade, if Fang was the trade and in a way the place to hide and the safe haven, sure thing, everyone was basically just ghost tracking Fang and maybe adding some style on top of it. Is that still going to work once the dust settles here or not, do you think? Well, not Fang. Um, I think that you're going to see... Uh, big tech, I think that some of the fangs are going to have some problems. Um, one of the things uh, Dominique said, or even you said, Kelly, actually, about uh, Meta, for example, um, is this is a company that's in tremendous transition. So one of the things that we like to avoid are companies where there's uncertainty about what their business model is going to look like. And certainly Meta is in transition at this point. So um, are they metaverse? Are they are they Facebook? Are they WhatsApp? Are they Instagram? I, you know, it, it's hard to say. I think the messaging has really been problematic for them, which is why they're getting punished so much by the market. Um, I'm sure you saw that the head of their uh, VR platform actually just resigned yep. and resigned out of frustration. So I don't like transitional names, but I think uh, Dom is absolutely correct um, that you really are going to have a rotation 
towards these go-to names. And I think they are more appealing the more the other players get killed. What do you think, Dom, final word? So the final word I, I would say is this. I think a lot of it will depend on what's going to happen with interest rates and what the Fed is going to do next year. Yes. If you have a situation where in the first, say, quarter to six months of next year, you have a Fed that looks like it could be starting to slow down or look like it could be getting towards that so-called terminal rate or ending of the Fed fund rate hiking cycle, mm -hmm. then you might start to see a bit of a call to action, if you will, from investors about, hey, this is the time. Get and in. by the way, it might even get be earlier than that because we know people- It might be happening now. It might be, it could <laughs> be because today, people yeah. expect it, right? They're, they're so geared, they, they want to, it's almost like in a football game when they're trying to bait you to jump off sides as a defense. You, you know, everybody wants to get back in the trade. They just don't know when exactly that Fed rate cycle is gonna finish itself. All right, got it then, Michael, sneak in one more teeny tiny humongous little question to you, which is in making this call, do you fear the Fed could spoil these trades? Uh, yeah, of course. If the Fed continues to ramp up rates, I mean, my thesis is essentially, Kelly, that the Fed is going to moderate their rate increases. The yeah. steepness of the slope is going to go down. Now, if I'm wrong and they start doing three quarters of a percent every single quarter, I think all bets are off. But I don't expect that to happen because I think you're already starting to see inflation starting to come down. All right. We will leave it there. Michael and Dom, thanks. Michael Yoshikami and our Dom Chu. Meanwhile, another troubling data point for housing. Today's home builder sentiment came in at the lowest level since mid-2012. It's been a string of declines there. And markets are bracing for more bad news this week. It's got the home builders back in the red. Diana Olick joins us with more. Diana? Well, Kelly, it was the 12th straight monthly drop, but the smallest drop in six months. And the NAHB's chief economist did say that given the recent drop in mortgage rates, the index may be near a bottom. Maybe. Still, homebuilder sentiment dropped two points to 31 in December. Anything below 50 is negative. It was 84 last December when mortgage rates were less than half what they are now. Of the index's three components, current sales conditions fell three points to 36. Buyer traffic unchanged at 20. But sales expectations in the next six months increased four points to 35. So there is your green shoot. Affordability, though, continues to be the problem. And while 62% of builders surveyed said they are using incentives like buying down the mortgage rate, with construction costs still way up, only 35% of builders reduced home prices in December, and that's down from 36% in November. So tomorrow we get the monthly read on housing starts and building permits. This should also reflect the drop in mortgage rates, which are now down a full percentage point from their recent high. And then on Wednesday, we get existing home sales for November, but those could still be ugly because they're based on contracts signed in September and October when rates were still hitting those high. Kelly? Speaking of rates, what's the latest on that front? Because we thought that they were down a little bit, but then today we're, we're higher. So how are we shaking out yeah, here? I mean, they were down quite a bit. Look, we're off that 7.37% that we saw at the end of October. We're down in the sort of 6.3 range. But then we saw bond yields, the 10-year Treasury, which mortgage rates loosely follow. Uh, coming up again. And I've seen a couple of analysts say that rates are not going below 6%. So if we kind of are in this range between 6 and 6.5, and we're up a little today, maybe down a little tomorrow, but definitely not going much lower anytime soon. All right, Diana, thank you for now, our Diana Olick. Coming up, the year ahead in media, one of these companies will face a proxy fight. One of them will merge with another big name. These are just two predictions from CNBC's annual media list. Several of last year's actually came true, so you definitely don't want to miss it. 
Plus, the people have spoken and they want Elon Musk to step down as Twitter's CEO. Tesla shareholders would surely want that too. The stock initially rallying on the prospect, turning lower and now trying to cling on to a 1% gain. So will he actually go? We have the latest ahead. As we go to break, a quick check on the markets. The Dow's down 100 points right now. Uh, the two-thirds of a percent decline for the S&P and a 1.1% drop for the NASDAQ. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. 2022 has been a big year for media. From Bob Iger's return to Disney to the massive cost-cutting at Warner Brothers Discovery and Netflix rolling out an ad-supported tier that may be off to a rocky start. So what can we expect in 2023? Joining me now is CNBC.com media reporter Alex Sherman. He spoke to 12 media executives for the 12 days of Christmas, Alex, on their predictions. But let's remind people, you called the Bob Iger return at Disney. So first of all, take a bow, please. Well, I mean, to be fair, Kelly, I didn't exactly call it personally. I spoke to someone who called it, and then I chose to include that prediction in last (laughs) year's 12. So I'll take partial credit for it. But these predictions are anonymous predictions from past and present present media executives uh, that hold, uh, you know, I would say, fairly significant to extremely significant positions uh, in in the media world. I assume it wasn't Bob Iger himself who told you he thought he would be returning at that point. I mean, if it was, I couldn't tell you, but that would be (laughs) fantastic as a prediction. You think the sort of, what do we call it, management turmoil at Disney is not quite over. Is that right? What do you think this year holds for this company? So let's stay with Iger, since we're talking about him. You know, of the 12 predictions I listed, I think they range to somewhat wild out of the box uh, to somewhat more uh, feasible. And and one of them that I think is quite feasible, simply based on his track record, is that Bob Iger decides to extend his contract. Certainly a lot has been written and speculated already about who Bob Iger may pick for his successor. But it's possible that he doesn't choose a successor at all right away. And he simply extends his contract. He's 71 years old. Uh, He's certainly in excellent physical condition. He has a famed early morning workout that he has continued to do even while he's been away from the job, I'm told. Uh, So he's he's in good shape. He probably has many years to go if he chooses to be CEO of Disney. And what do we know? We know two things about Bob Iger. One, 
uh, he has had trouble letting go of that job in the past. Three times he has extended his contract previously rather than retire and pass the company to someone else. And two, we know he loves being CEO of Disney. Why don't we know that? He just took the job again. Uh, so those two things indicate that an extension of his contract may be more likely than less. All right, let's move on to this call, which I find quite striking. Netflix will merge with another company. Tell us about this. Any hints as to, to whom or, or why? So this is one of the ones that I think is more out of the box, if you go at least purely based on uh, uh, previous history. Netflix has never done any M&A of significance, ever, in the history of the company. So the idea that it would suddenly merge with someone else would be a huge uh, strategic step in a direction they've never gone in. However, uh, what this executive told me and what others have said over the past few months is that it's possible now that if global growth is stalling, that Netflix may need to do something a little bit more out of the box in order to make sure that it has the requisite amount of original content it needs to succeed against the other competitors in this uh, you know, for years to come moving forward. And one way it may do that would be to merge with an existing legacy media player, whether that's Disney. That would be the huge one here. I don't know if regulators can would allow imagine? that. Can you I mean, both imagine? Can you actually imagine? There, yeah, I don't know if it'd be right. That It's such a stunning idea that it's exciting to contemplate. But I don't know. Maybe these deals take so long to close. Maybe it could happen under a different administration. Look, I, I think to some degree there's a little bit of wishful thinking here. Like, oh, Bob Iger's going to take the Disney job and he's going to come back in and he's going to merge Disney with Netflix. Right. And then he's going to ride off into the sunset as his you know, great last big move here. Uh, but again, when, when you look at that more closely, look, Reed Hastings is very positive about Bob Iger, certainly uh, publicly. He had that tweet you know, a couple weeks ago when he came back. Uh, sort of signaling like, oh, I wish he'd run for president instead of coming back. Uh, and he's always been a big champion of Disney. But you just saw regulators uh, uh, say the $69 billion acquisition for uh, Microsoft's for Activision uh, was not going to go through, uh, at least without a court fight. They also clamped down even on some smaller deals in the media world. Uh, the, the Simon & Schuster publication deal also right. Uh, not allowed by regulators. So the idea that they would allow two behemoth $150 billion companies together may be a bit much. So a smaller target could be Paramount. Uh, Paramount Global has Paramount Pictures, right. which would be a nice fit for Netflix. I don't know what they would do with the legacy cable networks. So that one is a bit messy there, uh, and it may need another buyer to come into it. In fact, that's one of the other predictions, exactly. is that Paramount Global may end up selling itself in parts. And a couple of others I want to mention before we go here. One is you think David Zaslav could be under some pressure at Warner Brothers Discovery, maybe a proxy fight, which would be fascinating. As much as I want to talk about that, there's also some important stuff in here about sports and where that's going. You think the cost of sports rights will peak? People have been wondering for years if we're at that point. And you think maybe YouTube ends up with NFL Sunday ticket? So let's start with the latter. Um, YouTube makes a lot of sense for the league. It's probably the closest fit to DirecTV in terms of a legacy uh, cable bundle. It's a digital cable bundle, YouTube TV, uh, pairing up with Sunday Ticket. That way, in its marketing, it can also market all of the NFL games that are already on legacy TV for the next five to seven years. Also, think about the reach of YouTube. There's more than two billion users uh, of, of YouTube in terms of sign up, 122 
million monthly active users of YouTube. That's a lot more than, let's say, the we don't really know how many people sign up to Apple TV Plus, but it's probably in the 20 to 40 million range, or even almost any of these streaming services. Uh, so from a marketing standpoint, YouTube makes a lot of sense. Google, Google is a huge company, big balance sheet, tech, technological aspirations. There's a lot of fits there that liken it to, say, Apple or Amazon, uh, which I think make it feasible. Uh, to your earlier point about the sports rights, the NBA renewals are coming up. I think everyone expects there to be another big jump in price in terms of the companies that pay for the NBA. What this person said was that will be the last significant renewal we have wow. where we're going to see those sort of outsized sports rights. Because if you think about it, a, a lot of the legacy sports, pretty much all of them are tied up for the next five to seven years. Who knows what the media ecosystem will look like at that point, it's certainly possible then that only sports fans end up paying for sports rights, exactly. which will bring the entire audience down. It, it feels like we're at that moment, doesn't it? Um, there's so much good stuff in here, Alex. I really recommend the piece to everybody. Head on over to CNBC.com to check it out. And thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. See if that track record Thanks, continues Kelly. in 2023. That's our Alex Sherman. Coming up, millionaire investors are the most bearish they've been since the financial crisis, and they point to one issue as the biggest threat to the economy as we head into 2023. We'll reveal what that is. And Carter Worth with the most notable chart of the year, and one that's setting up nicely for next year. That's the one you're looking at. It has seen 14 straight years of gains. The name coming up. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We are sitting with the Dow down 85 points in what's been a high of 118 today and a low of minus 118. So there you have it, a kind of mirror image. Again, we're tilted to the downside. S&P's down half a percent, down 1% for the NASDAQ, trading at 10,600 uh, in what's been a very tough year. Speaking of very tough years, let's turn now to the drama-filled world of crypto, where former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is now headed back to prison in the Bahamas after a court hearing today where he was widely accepted, expected to accept extradition to the U.S. Kate Rooney joins us now with more. Kate, this was apparently kind of a last-second change of heart here. Yeah, someone I was just talking to say it appears that he got cold feet, or someone on the legal team did. Uh, but, Kelly, there was a sense of confusion about today's hearing. The court in the Bahamas has been adjourned for the day, and Sam Beckman-Fried is headed back to jail. A source familiar with the matter had told me earlier that the former FTX CEO went into today's hearing planning to surrender himself to U.S. extradition, meaning he was coming back to the U.S., but Beckman-Fried's defense attorney today saying in court that Beckman-Fried wants to see the indictment against him before agreeing to be extradited. NBC News telling us that both sides expressed a lot of confusion in the courtroom. The prosecutor is saying we understood Sam Bankman-Fried was there to waive extradition in the first place. His Bahamian uh, attorneys, meanwhile, requesting that he be allowed to speak with his American attorneys while in custody. He arrived at the courthouse earlier today. He was there in a suit, according to NBC, but still looked disheveled as they described it. He was seen with his head in his hands. His knees were shaking, so we got some details on his overall demeanor there. 
Last week, his lawyer said that they planned to fight extradition to the U.S. He was denied bail and has been in the Fox Hill Correctional Facility in Nassau since his first court appearance last Tuesday. Bankman-Fried was indicted in a New York federal court last week on eight criminal charges and faces civil suits from the SEC and CFTC. Attorneys for Bankman-Fried declined to comment. But elsewhere in crypto today, Binance U.S. We've got some deal news agreeing to buy the assets of Voyager. That is a company that FTX was supposed to bail out, and Binance's de facto U.S. subsidiary will pay just about a billion dollars in that deal, Kelly. So uh, kind of ironic turn here at the end. Now now it's going to be Binance, which was the one that sort of caused the the decline of FTX. Let's turn back to Sam Bankman-Fried. Does it almost sound as though the gravity of what's happened is sinking in. I don't know if he's been in personal denial about the fact that this is, appears to be an $8 billion theft, but if that's how it is prosecuted, he's facing substantial amount of prison time. What are the prospects then for getting him to the U.S. and getting that process started? So it seemed a few hours ago as if that was moving forward, and that delay tactic, as some has, had described it, was sort of going away. They were saying it appears that he's going to come back to the U.S., and the trial can get underway. He'll be arraigned. He'll have to plead guilty or not guilty. And and the process can just move forward. This appears to be another delay tactic based on some what some legal experts were telling me. And someone described it as him getting cold feet or someone on his legal team. There may be a bit of a disagreement, whether it's him and his parents with the legal team. And so this was really unexpected. There was a sense of confusion. But another legal expert told me that it's not a great look. Uh, if he's coming back to the U.S. at any point and has any opportunity, there's sort of a window for him to get either bail in the U.S. and get some of these deals done and negotiate. And he may be losing out on that. So he may be losing that window that's, wow. I'm told, very, very narrow. That's fascinating. Kate, thank you, uh, as always, for your excellent reporting on this. Our Kate Rooney. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi again, Tyler. Kelly, great to see you. Welcome, everybody. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Stellantis and U.S. safety regulators have confirmed a third death linked to an exploding Takata airbag inflator. The company warning the uh, 274,000 owners of older Dodge and Chrysler vehicles to stop driving them until the faulty inflators are replaced. 36 people injured on a flight from Phoenix to Honolulu yesterday after the aircraft encountered severe turbulence shortly before landing. 11 of the injured were transported to hospitals in serious condition. NBC News reporting the January 6th committee believes it has enough evidence to refer Donald Trump's former attorney John Eastman to the Justice Department for possible criminal charges. Eastman's involvement stemmed from a memo he drafted to try and get former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the results of the 2020 election uh, during certification on January 6th. The legal arguments used in the memo have been disproved. Kelly, back to you. See you in a half hour. Sounds good, Tyler. Thank you very much. Coming up, if we had told you at the beginning of the year that fixed income would be one of the most important stories, you probably would have laughed, but the charts say it all. The 10-year yield starting at 1.6% up to 3.6% now. We'll look ahead at what's in store for 2023. The exchange is back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. As we wrap up the year, let's look back and see just how far we've come in the bond market. We started 2022 with a 10-year yielding just 1.5%, and now we're just shy of 3.6%. That's 200 basis points in 12 months. But what does it mean if you're a bond investor? The largest treasury ETF, the TLT, down 30% this year. A horrible return. But since the year low in October, that ETF is now up 13%. So is now the time to jump back into the bond market? Let's bring in Brian Weinstein. He's Morgan Stanley Investment Management's head of fixed income. Our Dom Chu is back for more as well. Brian, it's great to see you. And, uh, you know, I can understand the kind of this is a better entry point argument. But (laughs) tell us where you think the most attractive parts of fixed income are. Yeah, as you say, it's been a a wild ride and no one really saw it coming. But if I look at the bond market here, I think, uh, well, there's there's a couple risks. But I do think the bond market says if you buy high quality income, you've probably had the bulk of the duration move. That number you quoted down 40 percent to 30 percent in the long end of the yield curve is about as big a move as you're ever going to see, as we've ever seen, really. And so as we turn to Dom for our latest installment of Wonky But Wonderful or whatever we're calling it, (laughs) I mean, this, Dom, is is the the larger point here is that there is an alternative to the stock market if you want return right now. You can get yields. And the question is, where is the safest yield that you can get? Um, And and how much are you giving up if all of a sudden we are going to have a soft landing and the market's going to be okay? So so what's interesting, and I'd love to hear Brian's take on this, is there's, there's a bit of a paradigm shift with regard to how you're viewing fixed income or or just income credit investments in this kind of environment in general. We used to kind of tilt our conversations all about how they were geared towards people that were older mm-hmm. or people who were in retirement or getting there or like very close to it. Thing. Right. But but all of a sudden there's more of a discussion these days now because there isn't a real need for picking like individual bonds anymore. There's ETFs and there's funds for everything that all of a sudden it becomes if you're in your say your 30s or 40s or 50s as you're getting towards there. These are times when you can start building positions in these things and not taking a massive bet like, hey, I just need to put like half my net worth into a treasury fund or into an investment grade corporate fund. You can say, I'm going to start now. And by the time the next five to seven to nine years rolls around, I can build a decent portfolio that can be income generating. And these are perhaps where those opportunities are right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, usually I talk to John Ford about tech stocks and lately it's all about CD rates, Brian. So what would you say? I mean, I mean, should people say, okay, look, I'll take a one-year CD, 4%, not worry about what happens in 2023, or do you think there are more compelling opportunities? I I think it's probably more compelling, but I love that idea. I mean, by the way, I love this conversation. I'm in my 30s or 40s, but not... (laughs) 50s, yeah. Um, and so, but I think that's exactly right. I think you want to layer into fixed income, right? You can buy some cash. Cash is great. 4% is fantastic. But if you're paying taxes, municipal bonds are going to give you, you know, four, four and a quarter, I think, for, for things that mature in the next five to 10 years. If you pay a decent tax rate, that gets you six, 7% equivalents. Wow. If you, if you like high yield, then yes. I mean, there, you can get six, 7% equivalents there too. So it doesn't mean we're at the bottom. It doesn't mean we're going back to 2% tenure notes. And it doesn't mean the Fed has to ease, right? But what it does mean is income is part of the story. Whereas, as you said, the last five years, it really wasn't there. What are we missing? Because, you know, a couple years ago, crypto looked like a sure thing and everyone felt like a genius for six months until it collapsed. (laughs) You know, if fixed income looks like this much of a sure thing, are we all missing the fact that the Fed's about to surprise us again and destroy this whole party by hiking and and ruining returns again? What, what, What could we be missing here? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? You look at the bond market, it's, it's sure about a couple things, that the Fed is almost done hiking, they're going to ease. And by the way, it's very sure that inflation is going back to the, to the mid-twos, right? Five-year, five-year break-evens near 2.5%. Yeah. So the risk is that persistent inflation and the Fed keeps raising rates. But again, if you buy some cash assets, one-year things that mature, if you're wrong, you can re-up at a higher rate. And the yield curve is telling you, by the way, long-term, the Fed's going to get this right. Mm-hmm. So growth is going to suffer. It's going to go down. Inflation will eventually be conquered. So I like buying some very short-duration things and then some yieldier things that are in that 10-year ten ten part of the curve. Um, it doesn't mean you win right away, but uh, if you buy it over time, uh, if you're wrong, you'll survive. Um, by the way, if you're wrong, I think equities have a harder time, not an easier time. Right, right, exactly. Well, so, so I, Kelly, I mean, to that point, I, I, there's, there's, a, there's a sense growing right now. I mean, first of all, if you're a, if you're a fixed income investor, the, the two biggest things that you fear, fear, absolutely fear, are default, first, mm-hmm. first and foremost, and then inflation, mm-hmm. I, 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 probably a distant second or maybe a close second, if you want to look at it that way. The, the biggest wild card in the coming year to two years is whether or not central banks here in America and around the world will be able to get that inflation story in check. Because when it comes to sovereign debt, it's not really about the default aspect anymore, certainly not for the U.S. and other double triple A rated kind of com- you know, countries out there. But, but if inflation is going to be a per- persistent story in the coming years, it takes away a lot of the allure of that fixed income sure. kind of investment. And, and all of a sudden, you might start to see things change a little bit, maybe not back all the way towards the TINA trade, right, all into <laughs> stocks because there is no alternative. But people will maybe focus a lot more on risky assets just as a frame of thinking because they feel as though inflation is going to be part of the story for a long time. And I guess maybe, Brian, we'll leave it with you on that note. So if the Fed fights inflation and protects you that way, they risk a downturn that could wipe out your credit if you're exposed to default risk. If they don't fight inflation enough, your companies might pay out their obligations, but you might come out behind on inflation. So that's those are kind of the, the tug of war we're in. No doubt. No doubt. That's the risk. The risk is inflation stays high and your real yields, your yields aren't high enough. By the way, you could put tips in your portfolio. We're, we're not pricing inflation. So, yeah, this isn't a call for take 100 percent of your money and put it into bonds. This is it. There are still risks out there. But but as part of the discussion, should I own some? The answer is yes. And then we're going to figure all this out in the next couple of years. Um, the, the bond market is, I think, very much at odds with a lot of other opinions out there um, in terms of inflation coming right back to where it's been the last uh, the last decade. But you mentioned we'll find out. Yeah, you mentioned munis, Brian. You mentioned uh, kind of short-term. Any kind of last opportunities you just want to name call for people who are doing some research on their own at home? Yeah, listen, the, the place where we've seen the most inflation fighting um, is in emerging markets, right? It's been a tough decade for emerging markets, but if you want to see yields that are really high, um, you can go look at emerging market uh, debt funds and find real yields that are high. Um, countries that are fighting inflation, I think, very successfully. Hmm, it's like, been a tough trade, but one worth looking at. Um, just, you know, a, a creative emerging markets funds. I don't think you want to buy the index and things like that, but uh, I think a combination of emerging market local debt and, uh, and, and emerging market dollar-denominated debt, um, there's just some great opportunities in see, there. We it's been from, kind of forgotten about. We from boring, safe treasury fixed income to emerging market debt, just like that. Wonky, but just wonderful. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the conversation. Wonky, but wonderful, Brian. Brian, Wonky thank you very wonderful. much. Brian Weinstein with Morgan Stanley. Dom, a huge thanks as well. Dom Chu. Still ahead, 57%. That's how many people voted yes in a Twitter poll posted by Elon Musk asking if he should step down as CEO. And he's promised to abide by the results. So will he make good? We'll explore after this quick break. The exchange is back in two.
Welcome back. Elon Musk had promised to make Twitter the common digital town square. Well, the common people have spoken. The CEO asking users if he should step down and more than half of the 17 million people who voted said yes. Steve Kovac is here with the story. Steve, what's next? <laughs> it's anyone's guess. But right now we know there's no word yet from Elon Musk whether or not he'll make good on his word and step down as CEO of Twitter. But the results of his poll were clear, 17 and a half million votes with more than 57 percent saying yes, Musk should step down as CEO. So why is he doing this, Kelly? Well, he's already said he doesn't plan to run Twitter forever. Just last month, Musk testified in a hearing in a shareholders lawsuit challenging his compensation at Tesla and said he plans to find someone else to run the company. Now, much of that question in that case focused on Musk's time spent at Twitter instead of Tesla. Meanwhile, Tesla shares are down about 30 percent since Musk took control of Twitter and over 50 percent since making his offer to buy the company in the spring. And just last week, he sold another three and a half billion dollars worth of Tesla shares. That was presumably to fund Twitter operations as advertisers reportedly reduce or pull their spending. And it comes after saying he wouldn't sell any more shares. He's been saying that since the spring. The poll also caps a lot of drama over the last few days, arbitrarily suspending some journalists off the platform and waffling on a new rule suspending users who post links to rival social media sites. And as far as who would run Twitter if Musk sex down, well, he said there's, this weekend there's no successor yet. And by the way, Tesla shares are positive now. They're up even more pre-market 4% when polls close. I wonder what he means by that. No one who wants the job can keep Twitter alive. I mean, it sounds like he's pretty bearish on its prospects. Yeah. And his personal value is so tied up here between the shares that he sold out of Tesla, the over the price that he arguably overpaid for Twitter, and then the necessity for him to make this company work, even if he's just going to sell it at this point. Right. He, he's making, he's almost setting up the successor for failure, right? It's like the only thing he's been able to brag about, the only metric he's been able to brag about is engagement is up. More people are using it, which is great yeah. if people are using it, but not if you can't monetize those people and make money off of it. That's why we heard those rumors last week that maybe he's trying to raise even more money from outside investors at the same price he bought it for, which was already overinflated. So look, it, it's either find new ways to monetize, which he's trying with these subscription products, or he keeps having to go back to the piggy bank and, and cash out more Tesla shares. And we know Tesla investors are not happy with exactly. that. Exactly. Tesla getting another downgrade just this morning for, for that very reason. And you know, we, we know that Elon Musk has said a lot of things that haven't come true, whether it's full self-driving and what year that was going to come to mm -hmm. pass or any of his various side projects. So it's not that anyone's too surprised by this, but I think it is remarkable how much, you know, he's put his money where his mouth is in this case. It's not as if he and came in on... And other people's money, too, by the way. Right, but yeah. even for himself, even selfishly, it's not as if he's coming in on someone else's dime just to kind of see what he can do here. I mean, he has to make this work. Yeah, and I'm going to shock you, Kelly. He says a lot of things and then does the opposite or never follows through with it. So that's just kind of how he's operated forever. I mean, we you came up with some examples. Robo-taxis by 2020. That didn't happen. Uh, those solar tiles that after buying Solar City, that were, you know, the original ones he showed were supposed to look like regular tiles and it didn't really turn out that way. Plus, there are a lot of issues with those, with fires and so forth. So he excels at overpromising and under-delivering. And here it seems like he's really under-delivering on Twitter. And now he's at the spot where he feels like maybe I just have to quit and step down and give it to someone else and set them up to fail instead. Yeah, I, I, nobody knows what the next chapter holds. Uh, Steve, thank you. We Thanks. appreciate it, Steve Kovac. Coming up, Carter Worth gives us his chart of the year and looked cheap at the end of last year, but the shares are down 80% since then. We'll reveal the name and the lessons from it next.
Welcome back. No matter how you slice it, it's been a tough year for stocks. Each of the averages currently riding a two-week losing streak, but looking back, where you didn't invest could be just as important as where you did this year. As we approach your end, we ask the chart master Carter Worth for his chart of the year in 2022 and for another name he sees set up well for 2023. And his answers might surprise you. They surprise me. Let's welcome in the man himself, Worth Charting founder and CEO Carter Worth. Carter, good to see you again. Drum roll, please. Your chart of the year is... Right. So uh, when considering all of that, and we know there's been epic moves in so many things, one stock among many, because it became such a fad, but such a nothing is beyond meat. Um, uh, for the record, <laughs> look, I've <laughs> never had any of it. Uh, and, and here's the thing. I guess there's the real thing in life. And then there, there's always the fake thing. Um, and consider, I mean, think about, I'll, I'll give you something funny. Since the year 2000, you know, butter sales are up 83%. Margarine? down 32. Hmm. Sometimes just eat a little less of the real one or don't eat it at all. But why do you have to have a fake hamburger? Um, this company's market cap was $15 billion. It's wow. under a billion now. It's 900 and sinking. Uh, it's a testament to one of the great rules in markets. Just don't buy stocks in downtrends. Don't buy stocks in downtrends. So Beyond Meat you say it's still, it, it, it sort of sums up 2022 almost better than anything else probably could. So what about for 2023? Well, I mean, if one were to try to be um, careful, prudent, uh, one of the things to do is to always think large cap. Another thing is to think defensive in terms of sector or theme, and then to pick a marquee name. Well, United Healthcare has to come to mind. It does, to my mind anyway. This is a stock that is clearly domestic. It doesn't care about currency. It doesn't care about oil. It doesn't care about Putin. It is just operating its business in the managed care space. And it trades at a market multiple, if anyone cares about that. Not what I do, but it's worth noting. And it is the definition of a stock in an uptrend. And so when considering all things, I think this is as good a pick as any looking forward. Does it make you nervous that it's coming off a 14-year win streak? You know, it, and, and that a lot of people right now, we've heard, I can't even tell you just the past week how many people are bringing big healthcare names as their best ideas for 2023. Does that crowding effect tell us um, either that this is just the market that we're in, or is this actually some, some kind of trend to fade, much like if only we knew Beyond Meat, you know, back last January, if only we knew back then that this would have been the short of the year? Well, remember a, a year ago, which is so ironic, right? The stock was down 60%. And that's mm. the nature of value traps. Now it here is down another 78. Wow. The thing about healthcare is that it, as a sector is underperformed the market, its peak performance was back in 15, 16. Mm. And so it's not that crowded a space. I know uh, there have been a lot of uh, sort of thinking that I guess when the administration changed that there would be, you know, drug price issues and so forth. But listen, uh, that's outside market. My purview, I don't think anyone can do all of that. I think what we do is stick with some of the most tried and true things, which is relative strength. Beyond meat, if it's relative strength is poor, stay away. Yeah. United Healthcare, if it's good, embrace it. And it wasn't just Beyond Meat, GoPro, Zoom, Peloton, SoFi. I mean, these are other names that kind of had similar trajectories. Is is there anything, what are the lessons to be learned from that? I mean, obviously what you said about RSIs, but more broadly, it seems like we just really got perhaps retail traders piling into a consumer trading boom, and these names went way high, especially during the pandemic, and then the air just completely came out. 
Right. If you think about those names, they have a common thing. They're basically consumer. GoPro, you put the thing on your head. But what is it? It's really just a camera. Uh, Zoom, it's it's more consumer. SoFi, remember how Lending Club became very popular? Yes. And that got all wiped out. SoFi, is it the same? I don't know. But it, they're all what? In established downtrends. And usually that's a problem. All right, Carter. Thank you. We appreciate it. Carter Worth. Uh, worth charting. Still ahead, the S&P is down nearly 20% this year. And if the results from CNBC's latest millionaire survey are to be believed, 2023 might not be much better. Why the bears could be here to stay, that's next. thing before we go today. It's the results of the CNBC Millionaire Survey, and they're not particularly optimistic about next year. Robert Frank is here with the exclusive results. Robert? Kelly, the consumer story that we've been hearing is weakness at the bottom and strength at the top, but that may be about to change. 80% of American millionaires say they plan to spend less this holiday season. That's according to our CNBC Millionaire Survey. That's where we poll investors with a million dollars or more in investable assets. Younger millionaires, they're cutting the most. Virtually all the millennial millionaires that we polled said they plan to spend less due to inflation. And if you look at baby boomers, it's only 78%. More than half of them are more price conscious when they're shopping. And that we saw that, of course, with Walmart reporting more shoppers with six-figure in- incomes helping their grocery line. A third of millionaires are cutting back on restaurants and 28% are cutting back or eliminating major purchases. They think inflation is going to stick around for a while. Most say it's going to last at least for a year or more. You can read full coverage of our millionaire survey, including their forecast for stocks, which is very bearish. In fact, the most bearish since 2008. You can read all of that on CNBC.com. Kelly? Robert, it jibes with what we've heard elsewhere, that this is a white-collar recession already, that job openings for you know tech and finance and insurance, the fields like that are way down. Stock market returns have hit, obviously. Um, and that, yeah, that it's actually the blue-collar, the lower-income segment of the workforce where we're seeing the strongest wage growth and the best uh, demand right now. Yeah, not just the layoffs, but if you're a business owner, whether it's a small or a medium-sized business and you're wealthy, you're looking right now to cut spending, to cut, cut capital investment, and maybe even to cut jobs. So when you're doing all of that in your business, even though you may be doing okay financially, you're not going to be in the mood to spend on a big ticket item or restaurants or a vacation right now. Exactly. So a lot of that is not just the money, but the mood. Sure. And that mood can absolutely end up trickling down. Uh, As we know, certainly the market is worried about a broader recession. Robert, thank you so much, uh, Robert Frank. Uh, For full results, you can head over to CNBC.com. That does it for the exchange today. But speaking of bearish sentiment, coming up on Power Lunch, Nike reports after the bell tomorrow. And one analyst says a swoosh through the haze of economic uncertainty here and abroad isn't likely. We will debate it coming up right now. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.